Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome back. Uh, let's do episode 429. Um, we're going to continue along with part two of the American and British tall, tall case clock movements. Eight-day American bell strike. So let's pick up where we left off, setting the strike going. <clears throat> so we're almost ready to put the entire, quote, jigsaw puzzle together. The basic layout of the strike train, how, when the train runs, it causes the hammer to strike the bell. How the counting mechanism knows the hour of the day using the snail, which controls how far the rack falls and counts out the correct number of strikes by winding the rack back to its rest position. <clears throat> so I've already... I've already looked at how the whole sequence has started. So that comes to the final part of this explanation. So do not worry if you cannot remember every detail, because, I mean, there's a lot of information that we've just gone over. Um, it will all become clear as we work our way through the sequence of operations in the strike train. So for anyone listening out there, try to familiarize yourself with some schematics uh, of the strike train. And uh, in the future, maybe these will be made available on a, uh, uh, on a dissertation or on an episode from the conservation, horological conservation studio. So, <clears throat> so to show and to understand the parts clearly, let's, let's start with the rack pivot. The, the parts of the rack, which are essential to the explanation are the rack head and the rack tail. Okay. So first we're going to talk, talk about the train being locked. And that is in its normal position. The train is locked. That means the, the, the train, the wheels are not striking. So when it comes to an hour or sometimes on a half hour, or sometimes in a passing strike, as we said, that train or those series of gears or wheels will become unlocked enabling the power to cause a reaction, a strike of a bell or a gong. So, so the gathering pallet tail is locked against the locking pin on the rack head, so the train absolutely cannot run. The rack is held by the rack hook, which is resting on the rack, the teeth being fully engaged the lifter is free of the minute wheel pin, so the warning arm is resting in its lowest position and not lifting the rack hook. The hammer tail is clear of any of the hammer lifting pins. The rack tail is clear of the snail. So we just explained all the situations that have to occur when the train is locked. Let's talk about something called warning. So the next stage of this process is called warning or run to warning. It precedes the actual striking, beginning in a few minutes before the hour. Typically with a tall case clock, it could be anywhere from six, you know, six of the hour to four of the hour. So let's take a look at what happens, okay? As the minute wheel rotates anti or counterclockwise, 
Its lifting pin engages with a lifter and slowly lifts, strictly rotates it clockwise around the pivot when it's slowly lifting. The warning detent or stop, detent is a stop, on the end of the warning arm rises into the path of the warning pin on the warning wheel, although the warning wheel has not yet turned. The warning arm engages with the rack hook and lifts it clear of the rack. The rack then falls to the left, pushed by the rack spring, and the sideways push from the gathering pallet tail. Next, as the rack falls, the rack tail rises until the rack tail pin lands on the snail, which stops the rack moving any farther. Next, the gathering pallet is no longer locked on the locking pin because the rack head has moved away, so the train is free to run now. The train runs briefly until the warning pin strikes the warning detent, stopping the train again. So after half to three quarters of a turn of the warning wheel, so during the run to warning, as we just said, the relevant hammer lifting pin gets closer to the hammer tail, but does not touch it. There is still clearance between the pin and the tail. You must remember that when setting up a tall movement. You need to leave a little clearance. Sixteenth of an inch. The mechanism pauses in this state until the strike is released. <clears throat> so let's talk about striking release. At the moment, the minute hand meets the 12 o'clock position. The minute wheel has moved far enough for the lifter to fall off the minute wheel pin. The warning detent, being part of the warning arm, falls clear of the warning pin and allows the train to begin to run. The clearance between the lifting pin and the pinwheel and the hammer tail allows the train to run up to speed before it receives any loading from the hammer. If there is no clearance and the hammer has already started to lift, then the motive force for the striking train may be insufficient to make the train run. The description, the hammer is on the lift, is used to describe the situation when the hammer is already being raised. This is a fault. The mechanism has not yet been set up correctly. So <clears throat> I like to say it as this is a very slow moving machine. We're talking about the striking. So very slowly, by the second, by the second, the clock strikes the high hour. And if we had to wait at that precise moment for the mechanism to pull the hammer back and to let it gravity fall against the bell as a warning or as an hour indicator, it would never happen because it would take the hammer would have to come back too abruptly. There is enough time. That's why we have a run to warning. We have the hammer basically pulled back and cocked and ready to go. And then all it has to do is drop. So the strike train running. As the train runs, the pins on the pinwheel lift and release the hammer tail, including the bell.
So meanwhile, the gathering pallet is winding the rack to the right, one tooth at a time. The rack hook is riding up a tooth face and is soon to drop it into the next tooth space. So riding up a tooth face, dropping in the next tooth space between the next tooth. Each pin that passes under the hammer tail, the gather the gathering pallet rotates one full turn, gathering the rack by one tooth at a time. So let's talk about how the strike finishes. When the rack has been wound back to its rest position, the locking pin on the rack head blocks the tail of the gathering pallet, preventing it from turning any further and stopping the train. The friction spring on the fly enables the fly to gradually come to rest. This helps ensure the gathering pallet tail stops firmly against the locking pin on the rack rather than initially bouncing away from the locking pin. So hence, the train remains in this position until the next hour is approached, at which the point of warning sequence begins all over again. So let's summarize here. This step-by-step explanation of a typical English slash American, which don't forget most of these 85 to 90% of all these mechanisms were made in England, sold vis-a-vis kits, um, still on um, casting sprues, um, almost complete, totally complete. So it was a variety of ways, but most of these movements were made in England. Um, So the long case mechanism is probably one of the most simpler striking mechanisms you're ever going to find. Highly reliable. So once you understand this mechanism, you'll be able to work out how any of the numerous variants fail. For instance, French rack striking movements are much the same, except that the train is locked by a detent between the plates acting on a pin on the gathering pallet wheel, rather than by locking on the gathering pallet itself. 20th century rack striking movements look quite different in form, but operate almost identically to the long case strike mechanism. The main difference is that the rack hook is lifted over the rack tooth tips by a cam on the rack of the gathering pallet in order to reduce wear and noise. So the need for warning, why do we need warning? I just touched on that a few minutes ago. So when learning how a long case clock mechanism strikes, many people wonder if the warning sequence might be an unnecessary complication. In fact, many designs for strike mechanisms have been tried over the centuries, and some do indeed operate without a warning, but very few. These are, however, outside the scope of our episodes in our course. So in the case of the mechanism, Uh, we've been speaking about. The rack itself locks the train when it's in the rest position. The locking pin blocks the gathering pallet tail. The warning sequence allows the rack to be released a little before an hour, so it has time to settle into the correct position before the strike sequence begins.
At this point, the train is held by the warning detent engaging the warning pin. The train is released when the lifter drops off the minute wheel pin. Dropping the warning detent clear. This action involves just one moving part and is virtually instantaneous. All the preparation for striking has been done previously. It follows the principle that we've already discussed. <clears throat> so let's talk about a half hour strike. We've been talking only about a strike on the high hour. So let's go back to the half hour strike, adding a strike sequence to its repertoire. Long case clocks do not normally use the half hour strike because the 168 extra strikes in a week would re require a higher ratio between the great wheel and the first pinion or unequal sized barrels to ensure the two weights, the going weight and the striking weight are to keep pace with each other during the week's duration. However, spring-driven clocks quite often provide a half-hour strike using a simple modification to the mechanism. And this is as follows. First, an extra lifting pin is provided on the minute wheel, 180 degrees apart from the main pin. This is set further inwards toward the arbor so that it will not raise the lifter as far, in fact, not far enough for the rack hook to clear the teeth or the rack head. Second, the first tooth on the rack head is made just a tad bit shorter, possibly a millimeter and a half shorter than the rest. So it will, in fact, be cleared by the partially lifted rack hook. Thus, at the half hour, the rack hook is raised far enough to let the rack fall by just the first tooth. The strike sequence completes after one rotation of the gathering pallet, sounding the bell just once. So let's talk about avoiding some problems <clears throat> in the strike train. So when setting the time on a striking clock, the owner should observe two rules. Always move the hands forward, never backward, through the hour. Allow the strike sequence to complete each time in hours past. In reality, some owners do not observe these rules, so the clock must be able to operate in spite of such actions. If the hands are moved backwards, the minute wheel turns backwards, so when it engages with the lifter, it would try to push it in the wrong direction. So to prevent damage and jamming, the lifter is made of springy brass and often has a ramp formed by a bent tab at the bottom end. So this causes the lifter to spring outwards as the minute wheel passes underneath it if some unadorned or uninformed individual wants to counterclockwise turn their hands. So there is a safety, but the point of doing it too much can bend that spring brass lifter and then you have a you have, you're, it's going to have to be repaired or one's going to have to be remade by a certified clock individual. So if the strike runs down or if the strike does not complete at the end of 12 o'clock, the snail will be driven from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock while the rack is still lowered. That is, the rack tail pin <clears throat> is in the path of the vertical edge of the snail. The snail is provided with a chamfered edge 
as in the rack tail pin. The rack tail is made from thin, springy brass so that it moves outwards as the chamfers engage along the pin to ride over the snail without damage. So let's talk about repeat work. So as we had previously discussed in the days before electric lighting, it could be very dark inside a house at night, making it almost impossible to read time from the clock dial. So repeat work allowed the clock owner to trigger the strike manually, so the time could be known at least to the hour. So the clock that we've been talking about is a simple method for implementing this. The warning arm has a lever extending to the right, known as the repeat lever. By pushing down on this with a finger or pulling on a cord attached to it and then releasing it, the strike sequence can be initiated. It is exactly the same action as the minute wheel pin raising and then dropping the lifter. So let's talk about something uh, that's not typical on these uh, eight-day bell strike movements. It's called a star wheel variant. So in the mechanism we've been talking about, the snail is fastened directly to the hour wheel. It cannot get out of position with respect to the hour hand. So as you know, the steps on the snail ensure that the correct hour is struck for the hour shown by the hour hand on the dial. For a clock without repeat work, it is important that the rack tail falls well clear of a step on the snail. In this case of a repeating clock, the repeat is arranged so that when the manual repeat lever is triggered, the hour struck is the last hour struck right up until just before warning. For example, a few minutes before the hour. This means that the user, <clears throat> relying on the strike to tell time, and can, this can be ha had in the dark, rather than on the dial. So also, he knows with some certainty that the time is anything up to one hour after the number of blows struck, regardless of when the strike is initiated. So it could be one minute after the hour, it could be 59 minutes after the hour. In order to achieve this, a variation in the rack striking mechanism was invented. In this variant, the snail remains stationary for almost the whole hour, jumping forward almost instantly during the last few minutes before warning. To achieve this, the snail is mounted separately from the hour wheel on a stud. On the back of the snail is a star wheel. A pin on the cannon wheel engages with one of the points of the star wheel just before the hour, moving it to one step, rather like the gathering pallet gathers the rack tooth one tooth at a time. A spring jumper engages with the star points, and soon as the star wheel has been moved away or halfway through its travel by the pin on the minute wheel, the jumper flicks it to the rest of the way over, in effect providing an instant change of snail position. Thus, we avoid the situation where the rack tail pin can land right on the stepped portion of the snail. So, note that the jumper also keeps the snail from turning under its own weight, 
which is necessary because the snail is engaged from the motion work for most of the time. There's one shortcoming with this starwheel system, though. The snail is no longer directly connected to the hour wheel, and thus the hour hand. If the snail accidentally became in the wrong position, the incorrect number of strikes could be made. From then on, the clock will always strike the wrong hour until corrective action is taken. So let's uh, finish up with gearing. So as you know, the gathering pallet must make one turn for each strike of the hammer. The pinwheel typically has eight pins on it. A ratio of 64 teeth on the pinwheel to eight leaves on the gathering arbor pinion provides this ratio. And this is quite standard or very typical. The warning wheel must make the same exact number of turns for each turn of the gathering pallet wheel, typically six, seven, or eight. And a variety of tooth counts are used to provide these ratios. The higher the overall ratio between the great wheel and the fly, the more slowly the strike train runs. This is relative because the desired striking speed depends on whether the clock uses a bell or gong. When a bell is used, it is better for the strikes to follow in fairly rapid succession, perhaps a second or two apart. When a gong is used, it sounds much better if the strikes have a longer interval, perhaps 1.5 to 2 seconds. So I'm going to finish up with just a little bit of the count wheel strike, and we'll pick up the next, uh, in the next episode. So although the episode of the count wheel striking mechanism is simpler than the rack striking mechanism, there is a fundamental problem. The method for counting the number of strikes is not directly linked to the time. So let's go over the fundamental difference. On the count wheel strike, the locking plate strike uses a completely different method of counting the strikes. We will look for this in detail shortly, but the fundamental difference is that there is no length, no link between the position of the hour hand and that of the strike mechanism. That is, the strike mechanism does not know what hour it is. The hour hand and the striking mechanism are synchronized when the clock is built or repaired, and providing nothing that nothing disturbs the arrangement, they remain in step indefinitely. So, unfortunately, a number of situations can arise to affect the synchronization between the time and the striking. The most common is when the strike runs down, but the clock is still working. So, as you know, the rack strike mechanism has a special provision to prevent faulty operation so that it should always operate correctly at the next hour. The same cannot be said for the locking plate striking mechanism. Most count wheel strike mechanisms have a lever which allows the strike train to be repeatedly triggered until it comes back into synchronization with the hour hand. However, they are not usually easily, easy to assemble by the owner. So, in our next episode, we're going to pick up just how a count wheel strike mechanism works. So this is Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. This is episode two of American and British Tall Case Clock Movements, a course which I engineered, promoted, and taught 
at the NAWCC in Columbia, Pennsylvania in September of 2015. Thanks everyone for listening.